Uh, have you ever tried uh, assembling something without the instructions? Uh, it's, it can be quite difficult, can't it? I find it especially difficult. Uh, with something like a, a Kinder Egg toy, I can just about manage, um, and you can stumble your way through it. But uh, if it's something more complex, like a piece of uh, flat pack furniture, uh, like a wardrobe or something like that, or a bike you've had to assemble for a child the night before their birthday. Uh, the instructions are very, very necessary, aren't they? Now, the Bible is, is not an instruction manual. That is not where this illustration is headed. Uh, maybe you've heard the Bible described like that before, uh, but it's, it's not an instruction manual. We don't open it and follow step one to ten and achieve our desired goals. That's not how the Bible uh, works. That's not why it was written. Uh, but trying to understand complex uh, matters such as marriage and gender, as I, I want us to look at tonight, uh, is a little bit like trying to understand or assemble something without the instructions. And when it comes to understanding something as important as this, then it simply cannot be done uh, when people have thrown away the author's manual for how and why it exists. Uh, there is so much confusion uh, when it comes to marriage and gender today. Uh, just this uh, week, uh, I read an article saying for the first time on record, uh, the percentage of adults in England and Wales who are married has fallen below 50%. Uh, the figure has dropped a, a whole 2% in the last 10 years. And it's just the latest uh, statistic that shows that marriage is on the decline and not just in the UK, uh, almost 90% of the world's population now live in countries uh, with falling marriage rates. And uh, in the US, it's, it's stark. Uh, marriage has decreased by 60% since the 1970s. So it seems that the, the world doesn't see, make much of, of marriage. Uh, and neither does the church by the looks of things. Uh, the church seems to be confused well, the, the state church, anyway, seems to be confused as to what constitutes marriage. Uh, the Church of England is, is playing catch-up with, with where the Church of Wales has been going for the last uh, 15, 20 years as they've pushed through this uh, new blessing to give to same-sex marriages. So not only will uh, clergy be able to, to marry two men or two women uh, in churches as they've been doing for, for years now, but they will also be able to, to pray specific prayers to bless same-sex couples. And then uh, with uh, gender, it's, it's even more confusing, it seems. Uh, schools and uh, legislation and language and public areas have all been affected in some way uh, or another in, in the past few years due to the emergence of really uh, strong views on the subjectivity or the fluidity of gender. And... Uh, it's going to be a, a general election, I'm, I'm sure, this at, the, um, in, at some point this year. And uh, politicians across the, the political spectrum uh, will be asked, what is a woman? Uh, as they have been done for the last couple of years. And while they campaign and jostle for power and have muddled through, uh, they, they don't know what to say to that question, do they? Uh, they don't want to offend anyone. They just um and ah and hope that the question will come to an end. Well, my hope for this evening in this very confusing time is that we will see with greater clarity that we have a clear blueprint for both gender and marriage. 
which doesn't need constant change and updating. Uh, one of the difficulties uh, politicians and teachers and employees face in this environment is the ever-changing landscape. And what is deemed acceptable one week uh, can be seen as grossly offensive the next. And this is exactly what happens when morals and values are transient and fluid. When uh, people base these things on feelings rather than on God's beautiful blueprint. And in the same way as the architect has the authority on a certain building or a designer or an inventor uh, would be the best person to talk about the machine that they have created, God is the one who made man and woman. Have your Bibles open in front of you uh, so you, so you know that this is from God's word. This is not uh, just my uh, opinion on the, on the matter. Uh, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In God's perfect wisdom, he created man and woman. We are told that there is a, a separation of mankind into two sexes, male and female, wholly uh, complementary, yet each uh, sex uniquely and mysteriously bearing God's image. Humans bear the image and likeness of God as male and female. We will also see that God is the one who instituted marriage. And therefore, we should allow him to have the authority on it. He is perfectly wise. He is perfectly good. And not, knows not only what is best for himself, but what is best for us. And one thing we need to make clear from the very outset of this topic, and it's something which dovetails quite nicely with what we were talking about earlier this morning. Uh, yes, we are able to, to refute the false teachings of this world, the lies of this world, but let's remember tonight that those who are bending and breaking biblical gender and marriage conventions need our loving patience, don't they? And they need our correction rather than a hateful and cold dismissiveness and a sense of self-righteousness. Many of the people who are caught in the web of the world are living in sin. Yes, they're living in sin, but they are also hurt and lost and confused. So we need to be winsome with our approach and show how the Lord Jesus provides a better, more satisfying life than anything that the world offers. Okay? And so there's two things that I want us to see tonight in particular. Two things. Uh, first of all, everyone is made equally. I'm not going to say anything controversial tonight. If you disagree with that, then uh, we need to have words afterwards. Everyone is made equally. Uh, last time uh, we were in the book of Genesis, I think two weeks ago, uh, we were in the book of Genesis and we looked what it meant to be uh, made in God's image. Uh, men and women are both made in God's image. And Christianity is often seen as outdated, as sexist, as backward. Uh, Ricky Gervais, uh, he's the high pope of atheism, uh, one of the most active advocates for atheism and seems more kind of fervent in his evangelism for it than many Christians I know. Um, he, this is what he said. Um, it's almost as if the Bible was written by racist, sexist, homophobic, violent, uh, frustrated men instead of a loving God. 
How strange. And it's very sad that he has come to this conclusion. He's not on on his own, of course. Uh, Many of your colleagues and your friends and your family may well share Ricky Gervais's perspective that the Bible is outdated, that it's prejudiced, that it's uh, wrong to hold these views in today's society. But from the very beginning of the Bible, uh, there is a value and an equality present which is totally different to anything else of the time. No other religious text gives women equal footing with men. And you go through 21 centuries of history and women are downtrodden and mistreated. But here, at the very beginning of the Bible, we have this resounding reminder that God sees man and woman as unique but equal, both with separate roles but each with equal value and worth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And you see uh, the, the, the origin story of, of Eve. And uh, you see that in, uh, in verse 21. Uh, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There's a uh, Bible commentator from the uh, 18th century, I believe, uh, Matthew Henry. It's a quote that many of you will, will have heard before, I'm sure, but it's, it, it bears repeating. Uh, and it's a comment on, on this verse. Uh, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Now there's lots of poetic license taken there, but it's it's a wonderful image, isn't it? And there's nothing that disagrees with scripture there in terms of how uh, men and women ought to interact. And we will see as we explore Genesis that God has distinct roles for men and women. But there is something so powerful that I want us to acknowledge and celebrate in our first point. That God cares about men and women. He cares about people of all ethnicities. He cares about people with disabilities. And he cares about young and old. And he cares about rich and poor. Each and every person is precious to God. And that ought to be reflected in the way that Christians live. If we're to desire to be like the God who made us, then we ought to care about people of all backgrounds, of all ethnicities, of all all, uh, with disabilities and young and old. There shouldn't be any uh, segregation in our minds. And on Wednesday night, uh, we'll be looking at that in a bit more depth. That's just a teaser for Wednesday uh, for you to come along to. Um, It's only the Bible that allows us to have this sort of thinking. Uh, When we looked at the image of God, two weeks ago. Uh, it's only the Bible that allows this sort of thinking. If you live in a, in a godless universe where it is the survival of the fittest and you, you, you're merely trying to, to pass on your, your DNA to the next generation, then why would any of this make sense? It's only a, a good God who creates a universe and sets out things as they ought to be where you can have this wonderful order uh, that we have seen. So that's the first thing. Everyone is made uh, equally. But secondly, 
I also want to look at uh, everyone is made for community. Everyone is made for community. So in the first chapter, if if you uh, remember what the uh, repeated refrain was, uh, we saw it is good. It is good. It is very good, uh, God says. Uh, And then we see an anomaly here. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So has God made a mistake? Is there an imperfection here? Has God messed up? It's his first time creating uh, a human race. Maybe, maybe he messed up. Now we know, don't we, that God cannot make mistakes. Uh, Deuteronomy tells us that God is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness. And without iniquity, just and upright is he. So we know it's, it's not a mistake. And the reason he says it's not good for man to be alone is because it was never meant to be that way. Uh, Adam uh, looks at all the animals and he's, he's looking for a, for a friend. He's on his own and he looks at the giraffe say, I can't imagine being a, being a lifelong companion of mine. Uh, maybe a lion? Would be cool, good, good protection, uh, maybe around, around the house. Or maybe a dog. Dog would be man's best friend. But not even a dog could be the friend and the companion Adam needed. And so God sees this situation. I'm not sure if that's how it played out. But God says to Adam, I will make a, a helper fit for him. And uh, you see this, this phrase. And it might make you feel uncomfortable in, there in verse 18. I will make him a helper fit for him is this the bible saying that that all women are just glamorous assistants uh, men are the are the real deal while women are just helpers well helper is not a demeaning term do you know who else is called a helper in the bible if you look at exodus chapter 18 and verse 4 my god was my helper he saved me from the sword of pharaoh in psalm 33 we wait in hope for the lord He is our help and our shield. Or Psalm 70. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. And that's just three examples. I could have picked so many more. Exact same word being used. The word is describing someone who provides exactly what is missing in the man. What is lacking. Who is able to do the things that the man is unable to do alone. So man and woman are not opposed to each other. They, they complement each other, not as in saying nice things to each other, although that is helpful, men and women, to, to complement each other. But they, they complete each other. They improve things when they are together. It is not good for man to be alone because God could not accomplish all that he wanted to accomplish with just a man. The world could not exist with just men or just women. We need both. So God gives Adam and Eve a context for them to enjoy their relationship in. God gives us marriage. And marriage is something that is only existent in the human race. It's only the human species that marries. Um, I did some reading this week. Uh, you'll be glad to know I'm doing my, my studies for, for, for these messages and 90% of bird species mate for life, I found out this week. But only 3 to 5% of mammals do. Um, 
So we are, we are very different to any other kind of mammals. And it makes my kind of watching of 101 Dalmatians as a child confusing because I was sure there were two dogs that got married in 101 Dalmatians. But it's, it's clear, isn't it? Marriage is a, is a gift from God for um, men and for women. And once again, God has made people uh, with different cognitive, emotional and spiritual capacity to any other living thing. We are built differently. Uh, if you have forgotten or weren't here two weeks ago, we looked at a whole host of reasons why mankind is different to every other part of God's creation. And so we've got this marriage scene. Uh, the Lord God caused a deep sleep, verse 21, to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I'm not sure what the last wedding in this room was. Uh, if you've ever been to a, a wedding and you've wondered why a father walks his daughter down the aisle uh, and uh, uh, brings him to the groom at the front of the church, this is where it comes from. This is the first time it happens as God brings Eve to her new husband. And then the man said, verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first time in the, in the whole Bible we hear someone other than God speaking. And you'll see if, you, if you've got your Bible uh, in front of you, um, that it's, it looks different to the rest of the, the writing around it. And that's because it's written in verse. Adam is so uh, taken aback by Eve, he bursts into song. Now, if you turn on the radio and uh, you listen for a few minutes, I'm sure you'll hear some songs. And you hear plenty of love songs that are inspired by people that are special to the songwriter. But this is nothing new. It all started in Eden with Adam singing in admiration for his new wife. Uh, she's amazing. You can't believe it, uh, how good God has been to him. But as God sets out this picture for marriage at the end of chapter 2, this is what he says. Uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now we know that this, uh, Moses includes this uh, for later generations to see. Uh, because Adam didn't have a father and mother. Uh, neither did Eve. So this is uh, how everyone else is to see marriage. Um, but we read that description. We see that they're not ashamed and that they are enjoying each other's presence. And that everything is perfect. And we look at our lives today and we, we think how broken and how marred things must be. There's uh, cultures where men marry multiple women. And uh, in our own society, men marry men and women marry women. And uh, marriage vows are broken and it's, it's so sad, isn't it? And this is increasingly becoming more and more normal and accepted. And I was reading the, um, the Church in Wales handbook on marriage this week to see what they had to say about um, same-sex marriage. This is what the church in Wales says. A Christian understanding of marriage is not threatened by the inclusion of homosexuality. It is enriched by it. Blessing a marriage between a same-sex couple would not be a redefinition, but a deepening of the Christian understanding of marriage, 
consistent with the path of its development through scripture and tradition. If marriage is a common good, then a denial of the possibility of marriage for same-sex couples disregards the legitimacy of their identity and experience, rendering their love, desire and experience voiceless, rejecting the original goodness of each person as they are, whole and worthy of love. Reading that broke my heart. Hear this this evening. Your identity and your experience as a human being made in the image of God is not bound up in whether you get married or not. We are whole and worthy of love whether we are married or whether we're single. We do not alter God's perfect blueprint in order to to make people feel as if they've got a voice. It's evidence of how lost and confused people are. As I read this handbook, uh, I witnessed the gymnastics that had to be done when reasoning for allowing same-sex marriage in the church in Wales. Uh, The reasoning goes, uh, terrible reasoning, that our perception of marriage is is constantly evolving. And though it was formed in the norms and ideals of the first century, it now needs to get with the times. But Jesus' theology, and therefore our theology, I hope, is not informed by first century Roman ideals, is it? Uh, When uh, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and asked him a question about marriage, he didn't talk about what was going on in his day, did he? When the Pharisees said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus, his theology of marriage is informed by Genesis 1 and 2. So what are we to do? As, if I, as I've, I've said before, our aim tonight is not to feel self-righteous. It's not to condemn others. But it's to, to realize once again God's wonderful blueprint, God's plan for us all. It's not good for man to be alone. So how can we as a, as a church affirm that marriage ought to be between a man and a woman and yet support those who will never get married? Well, we need to provide community in a, in a broader sense. You see, not everyone is going to get married. It's, it's mathematically impossible. Uh, and I, I heard of a, a Christian who grew so impatient with people asking him, you still single? that he started replying, you're still married, are you? Um, it's perhaps a, a little facetious, but the point stands, doesn't it? Uh, 35% of adult church members in the UK are single. Uh, they are divorced or widowed or unmarried. And that's a, a decent chunk, isn't it? And those who are unmarried should never feel ashamed or embarrassed. And the church has done great shame and done great harm to those who are single by seeing marriage not as a gift from God, but an idol rather than the precious gift it is. And marriage is something wonderful, and it does provide a wonderful picture for the gospel. Do not get me wrong there. Uh, Listen to these words from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ 
loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I'm a big fan of marriage. I'm a big fan of marriage, and it's so important that we have a high view of marriage. But it's not the highest plane of existence. Uh, Sam Albury wrote a really helpful book called Seven Myths About Singleness. Um, I would read it regardless of your relationship status. Um, But this is what he says. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. The Bible uh, never specifically tells us Paul's exact status, uh, whether he was single throughout his life or whether he was a widower. Uh, But that's not the important thing. The important thing for us to see is that Paul recognized that his singleness was a gift from God that he could use for the service of the kingdom. He said, I I don't have the anxieties that a married man has. Uh, I, I, I should get back home. Imagine he was on a mission trip. He was wanting to get back home and look after his wife and his children. No, he was, he was free, wasn't he, to make his way across Europe and face the difficulties of mission uh, without any concerns. And he, and he tells the church in Corinth about this. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that is, is good for them to remain single as I am. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He goes on in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So there is the recognition here from Paul that not everyone is in the same position. Some are going to marry, some will not. Singleness is a gift, just like marriage is a gift from God. Both can be ways of serving him. Another single man that we see in the scriptures is the Lord Jesus himself. And there's a number of reasons why Jesus remained single. Uh, Jesus had limited time in his earthly ministry and his uh, travel and his demanding workload would have prevented him from, being a, uh, f- from fulfilling the roles of a husband and a father. If Jesus had married, uh, imagine uh, what life would have been like for his widow. Uh, she would have been idolized and deified and likely uh, physically endangered because of her relationship with the Lord Jesus. Um, In human marriage, uh, husband and wife become one flesh. So his relationship to his wife would have caused some confusing 
uncertainties. If Jesus uh, became one flesh with a sinner, uh, would that connection have tainted him with sin? If they had children, what kind of nature would those children have? There's all sorts of complex questions that uh, Jesus getting married would have caused. But if Jesus was human, and he was, and if he lived a full and perfect life, like he did, and yet remained single, which we know he did from scripture, then we cannot say that remaining single questions, as the Church of Wales suggests, someone's legitimacy of their identity and experience, rendering their love, desire and experience voiceless, rejecting the original goodness of each person as they are, whole and worthy of love. That doesn't describe my saviour. We need to be so careful with that kind of thought, don't we? And note, too, that marriage is is not for eternity. Although it might feel like it at times. (laughs) There is a reason why marriage vows specify that we make these promises until death parts us. And when the Pharisees tested Jesus with a question concerning marriage and the resurrection, what did Jesus say? At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So single people, married people, We'll be perfectly content in heaven because we're going to be with Jesus. Your contentment in the new heavens and the new earth is not based on your relationship status now. But in the meantime, we need to acknowledge that it is hard sometimes for those who are single, for those who feel lonely in difficult marriages. And that is why the church is a wonderful gift, a place where single people and married people are joined together because of their unity in Christ. We as brothers and sisters can encourage and share and teach and challenge one another. God's blueprint for your life is this. If you're waiting for a, for a moment where I told you what is going to happen in your life, this is it. If you remain single, you remain single. If you get married, you get married. There is not a better or a more holy choice. The important thing is your relationship with the Lord Jesus and how you use your singleness or your marriage for him. When you read the Bible, it's bookended by by two weddings. Uh, Genesis 2 is where Adam and Eve get married. Uh, It's a pretty private ceremony, so I'm told. Uh, There was only a couple of people in attendance, Um, maybe just one person uh, watching on, Uh, but it was in a beautiful garden. But at the end of the Bible, there's a a far busier wedding scene. In Revelation 19 is where the great marriage feast takes place. And that is something that is yet to happen. If you've got a Bible, look at Revelation 19. This is something that every Christian should be eagerly awaiting. This is what Revelation 19 describes. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those 
who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. My favourite thing about a wedding, I've been to a lot of weddings. There's one, the year after we left university, I went to 11 weddings in one year. Um, I've been to a lot of weddings and I've, I've officiated one and I've been the best man at a, a, a handful of occasions. And when you're able to sit, stand near the front, you get the, the best view in the, in, the, in the house, other than your own wedding day. Um, but you get to see the groom's face when the bride walks in. And I always like looking at the groom's face when the bride walks in because it's a, a, a beautiful moment where the, the groom can't quite believe um, this is actually happening to him. And it's a wonderful picture, whether you're married or, or unmarried or whatever your status is, this is a wonderful picture for how the Lord Jesus will beam with excitement and joy when he sees the church at the wedding feast. Those who have been forgiven and cleansed at the cross will be united with their bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. And he will beam saying, that's my girl. He'll say that about you, his church. Isn't that amazing? And this is what Isaiah 62 says. I'll close with this. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. No, uh, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hepzibah and your land Beulah for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That is what God, that's how God sees the redeemed sinner. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So whether we're looking at the first, Bible, the first wedding of the Bible or the last, let us remember that if we are safe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as every redeemed saint is, that that is how the Lord Jesus sees us today.